Welcome back to Discuss Foundation. Uh, this episode, we are going to be covering the season finale of season one. Uh, season one, episode 10, The Leap. Brian, can you tell me who directed and wrote The Leap? It is one of the main creators of the show. It is David S. Goyer. He wrote and directed the episode. As always, guys, what we're going to do is go ahead and go into our general thoughts on the episode, kind of an overview of our thoughts and where we think it potentially ranks with the other episodes in the season. Um, after that, we're going to go into a scene-by-scene -scene recap where we go a little more in-depth and give our feelings a little more specifically about the episode and each scene. And then afterward, we're going to go ahead and give our predictions, which might be a little hefty in this one considering it's the season finale. We're going to give our predictions on where we think it's going to go in the future. Uh, before I kick it over to Brian for his thoughts here, I want to give the quick disclaimer, which is that me and Brian have not read Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. We're not really learned it on the books at all, so we don't really know how they relate to the show and vice versa. So if you guys are looking for something more along the lines of that, uh, differences with the book and stuff like that, there are other podcasts that you can uh, check out for sure. And then before uh, we start as well, I just want to thank all of you guys. This has been such a fun uh, kind of journey going through this season. Uh, this was our first Discuss podcast after show, and we definitely plan to do a lot more in the future. Um, specifically, yeah. we've got Hawkeye coming up, which is going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you're subscribed to the channel for that one if you guys are going to be watching that show. It's going to premiere uh, uh, November 24th, I think, when the show premieres. We're going to try to have an episode out that night. Um, so definitely make sure you subscribe for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're also going to be partaking in some famous Christmas traditions for each episode that we're doing, which should be a lot of fun. Again, I just want to thank you guys for hanging out with us. You guys have been so awesome in the comments and kind of uh, the discussion with you guys has really elevated the show for us and made it a lot more fun. Uh, so we really hope to continue that uh, going forward. But with all that being said, Brian, what were your thoughts on the season finale of The Foundation? For the episode, it was really it was really unique. Um, they did a lot of great stuff. It wasn't my favorite episode, uh, surprisingly, because I know every single time I'm like, oh, this is my favorite episode. This is one of the times I can say it wasn't one of my favorite episodes. It was a good episode, but it felt like it was answering the questions that we wanted to answer. It did give us really great lead-ons to the season two and moving forward. So it did set everything up nicely for future seasons. So that was really good. Um, it was very open-ended. So we know that since they announced there was a second season, it helps us understand like, okay, I could see where everything progresses. I could see where everything happens. I just, once again, I just wasn't, I wasn't a fan of this episode. There was a few things I didn't like, and we'll go over it more into detail, but it, it was a solid like six, six, seven. Yeah, so kind of like a middle-of-the-road episode from season yeah. one. Yeah. Okay, uh, and what about the season as a whole? How do you think, uh, what do you think, uh, general feelings on the season one foundation? Um, general feelings is, af I think after a couple of this this the season, they kind of figured out the voice a little bit. I, I hope they flush it out more in season mm -hmm. two, uh, focus a lot more on the pacing, the characters, kind of fix some of the issues they had here in the first season where we didn't really get a sense of time that they kind of just like oh yeah we jump 30 years in the future and it's going to seem like it's nothing so mm -hmm. i hope that they kind of fix things because we are going to see where they go and when we get to the end we could talk more about predictions and stuff like that but what about yourself what were yeah, your so general thoughts of the episode and feelings and stuff like that yeah i concur with most of your uh most of your opinions on here so season one episode 10 the leap i think uh is is not one of my favorites of the season um at all it's probably one of my more least favorites honestly uh i wish i would have liked this a lot more than i did you know we talked in previous uh episodes of the or previous podcasts uh, on the episodes that 
Um, Foundation's kind of at its best when it's when it's uh, plot driven. It's very plot driven. And this one was very much uh, not that. It was very character driven. A lot of talking in rooms and dialogue between characters. And that seems to be where I have a lot of uh, of grievances with the show. And uh, so so there were a lot of there was a lot of that in this in this uh, episode. And we'll, I'll definitely dive into kind of more specifically what I took issue with uh, when we get into the recap. As far as season one, um, I definitely think there's a lot more good than bad in this season. I uh, I really I oh, really yeah. love the production quality. I think uh, production wise, this yeah. is probably one of the best shows of the year. Honestly, if you just take in technicality and production of the show, um, I haven't seen a show where like episodes have taken my breath away as much as this in a long time. Where I just the images that I'm seeing are are amazing. Um, again, it just comes down to a lot of really inconsistent and illogical character stuff that yes. uh, that that kind of kind of drives me crazy. A lot of times, season one of a show is where the writers are kind of finding their voice. Yeah, and uh, so it's kind of important to give that kind of leeway to them in that in that realm. It, it does feel like kind of a mixed bag for me, um, but I am excited to kind of see where the show goes still. And I do want to give, like I said, I want to give that benefit of the doubt too for. A lot of a lot of shows don't have it all figured out in season one, so I do yeah. want to give a lot of a benefit of the doubt for that. But we want to go ahead and jump into the recap. Let's see exactly Let's what go. happened and and what our thoughts were regarding here. So it starts off with kind of a um a voiceover from Gail, uh, which is which has happened in so many episodes uh, so far this season, and uh, we see Harry's kind of casket and kind of how the vault came to be. Um, did you have any initial thoughts about kind of this sequence and the explanation as far as what the vault is and where it comes from? And, and, and was that satisfactory for you? I mean, it kind of makes sense and it kind of helps answer where, how Henry got involved there, how it, how he became like that. But it, my biggest issue with the vault was you see it uh, metamorphosized into a, from a casket to this thing. And it's like how far advanced is technology where they could kind of pick and choose what they want to do with it. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there's the nanotech. I know that there's the different classes and the different uh, social economic structures. But like, if you're an outcast of the world, they're literally getting rid of you. They're giving you like the bare minimum silicon crew of stuff. How in the hell do you smuggle in a casket with nanobots that could magically transform your consciousness? It, it just, it just felt like way too like, you, you could suspend belief, but what they were asking was as far, 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 far to like, nah, this go after yourself. This is not true. That will never happen. Right. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I agree with a lot of that. I, I like the whole, like I ate a pill and it had self-replicating robots in it. And then I, and then it like, it broke down my tissue and then created the framework for this giant vault by like harvesting nearby asteroids and stuff. I just remember thinking like, if that tech exists, like, that solves so many problems in this galaxy, like in this in this world. It's like um, if if that kind of if that kind of insane nanotech that can self replicate and create giant essentially weapons. Because if you take the null field into account, it's like literally just a weapon that makes people pass out and stuff. Like like if that tech exists, I feel like it would vastly accelerate Harry's mission, um, just from a technological standpoint. And it's it's it doesn't seem consistent with where kind of the universe is. It seems almost like a magical. Um, I, I I don't know. It doesn't seem like it it it's it fits uh, in the universe, and that was kind of a gripe. The other thing too was it made kind of Harry Seldon like this, almost like perfect at everything prophetic figure. Where I just remember thinking like, was he that advanced like technologically? Because I always just assumed that he was just a vastly like superior and amazing mathematician, and then um, for him to kind of have this like 
technological prowess and stuff and uh kind of scientific prowess i remember thinking like that seems he seems almost like a god or very outlandish and it didn't seem like it fit the logic of the show up until this point if you're able to put nanobots in a small little pill why the hell do the Klingons have to have the blood transfusion the all this crazy stuff like can't you just make a pill that kills off all the nanobots like it it there's not a consistent way to build the story like just magically the deepest darkest secret of the universe he knows it but nobody else knows it it just makes no sense that like only he knows it. how come he didn't tell anybody hey it and and then he gets into like this the psycho history the math the invictus and it just felt like this is way too godlike power like he's almost you gave us a superman and he could fix everything and <laughs> yeah it, yeah there's no conflict Right. And it's uh, it's yeah, it, it, the, the next scene, the scene where he kind of emerges from the vault and kind of starts talking was probably my least favorite scene in the episode. I remember for a couple of reasons, there's a, there's there's the reasons you spoke of, which which is that he just seems to kind of be this omnipotent, like um, knows everything, all knowing being. And uh, and it it takes away from from kind of the, the stakes and the tension in the show yeah. when, when you have a character that's like that. I thought there was way too much exposition. It was just, yeah. he was just saying all of this stuff. Nothing was shown to us. It was all just speaking. And he was all just kind of telling us the story about how this is supposed to fit together without, there weren't a lot of visual breadcrumbs as far as like the, the nanotechnology that would have created this and made this happen. There were no kind of allusions to that early on. Um, he's giving this giant speech to Anacreon and Thespin. And I always get frustrated when shows kind of portray um, entire planets by like two people so there's like the anacreids and the thespians and they're supposed to be like representative of the entire population of their planets and he's kind of um yeah. he's kind of mediating and kind of reuniting them as a people just by giving this um this this story about um this girl and uh like a, a wedding that went bad um in the history yeah. and the lore a while back uh i that that always that kind of frustrated me just because uh, there were no there were no allusions to this story or this wedding beforehand. He just yeah. stated it. And, and this goes back to a criticism we've had in the show before, where it seems like they're setting up stuff and paying it off in the same scene where it's like, had there maybe been some lore and some stories weaved in earlier about the reason Thespis and Anacreon hated each other with this wedding and all that kind of stuff yeah. earlier in the episodes, um, this like, would have been more of a reveal as opposed to him him just like saying what the story is to us. You know? Yeah. Um, in the first episode, like when they blow up the Starbridge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it the Starbridge? Yeah, the Starbridge. They literally had Anacreon's and Thespis in the court presenting all these presents to them. And it would have been great just to hear a quip from either or like, you know, we're in this mess because of because of so and so killing our 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 queen exactly. so many years ago. This is your fault. It would have been great to see there because we're just told they hate each other. Okay, right. why do they hate each other? Yeah. And like how you said, they introduce a conflict and they resolve it right then and there. Yeah, it seems like for such a for such a show that's so far sighted, it seems so short sighted to do that. So like for a show like Foundation, where everything is about kind of like long stretches into the future. Yeah, um, you'd think that there would be more of a priority to kind of weave in uh, conflict resolution earlier in these episodes and like have these things kind of pay off for us so that we feel invested in the story. But he first brings up that wedding thing and then resolves it in the same episode. And all of a sudden, Anacreon and Thespin are like united now. They're all good yeah. because Harry just gave the speech. 
and uh, it's, it's it's just kind of unsatisfying. The other thing too was it's so visually the scene is so visually boring because so, yeah. they're all dressed in like in like gray and brown, right? They're out in the middle of this kind of uh, sandy sandy place, and he's giving this stirring this big stirring speech about the super consequentials of the show. And it's just kind of this bland background with these. And, and I just remember thinking like they couldn't have come up with some different way for him to do this visually. Cause it seems, I just remember it looked very visually flat to me. I, I hate that he was doing so much exposition, but at least if you kind of hide it where you're, you're kind of doing something more dynamic visually while it's happening, it, it makes you less aware of it. But I was just standing there and I felt like I was just get, being given a Ted talk by Harry Seldon about, what the story yeah. like what the story was that i i had no idea about before so the last uh, thing i'll say about that scene too that that kind of confused me and maybe people can let me know in the chat uh, or the in the comments um if if i shouldn't be but he seemed extremely like calm about about finding out about salvo harden yeah. and he also he also seemed very calm about finding out about gail so when i watched the scene um, she says, who are you? She says, I'm Salvor Harden. I, I opened the prime radiant and I opened your uh, vault and he goes, yeah. Oh, I guess some thanks for an order. He seemed very kind of nonchalant about it. And yeah. then the other thing too, is he said, where's Gail? And she said, Gail never made it to terminus. And there was no hint of emotion in him at all. Yeah. Like it's it pretty much like, cause for all he knows at that point, Gail died on the way to terminus. And there was like zero like emotion from him yeah. whatsoever. He was just kind of like, oh, well, all right. Well, some thanks for an order for you, Salvor. Like, I guess oh, she didn't make it. You know, I remember now, being like, what? Yeah. like, you'd think he would be like, wait, how she didn't make it. Oh, my God. Like, she was my protege. They had like an emotional connection or bond. And it, I didn't see any of that when he when she said he, she didn't make a determinist, which was kind of uh, weird for me. So it, it cuts from that to um, Brother Dawn and or Brother Day and Brother Dusk kind of speaking over Dawn's clone. And yes. Dusk makes the point and says he wonders that if Day were there, if he would have kind of had the resolve to see these differences in Dawn or if he would have kind of been blind to it. And I think Dusk says something along the lines of we'll, we'll, we'll never really know or something along uh, something like that. And then it goes from that scene to um, the scene where Day goes to kind of confront Dawn about what's going on. So there's this... Uh, there's the scene between Day and Dawn, which I I thought was a pretty strong scene. Again, I, I I relate pretty empathetically to Dawn's plight, like because I just think how much it would suck to have to like live um, where you're acting like twenty four seven. Like he's having to go against his his uh, his nature, which is very analogous to a lot of struggles that people go through yeah. today. But um, I. I definitely empathize with him saying like, I studied videos of you guys. Yeah. I constantly watched you figuring out how like little mundane, um, little mundane yeah. things that you guys did uh, and, and had to kind of replicate those. So I thought that was very strong. What did you think about the, the interaction between day and dawn in this scene? Before I get to that, this mm -hmm. is the one thing I've noticed about the series. When I first started watching it, I hated, I hated, I hated, Brother Day, Brother Dawn, and Brother Dust. I couldn't stand them. I thought they were the boringest, the, the most boringest part of the series. As the series progressed, I've started to love more and more whenever Day, Dawn, and Dusk are on screen because mm -hmm. I know the story is going to be very well acted, very well scripted. The emotions are going to go through. You're going to see such great nuances and differences between them all. I just loved the, the scene, how it's set up, how it's framed. Because you see uh, Brother's Day room in shreds and shambles, destroyed. Mm -hmm. And he's just sitting there like, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And that's always going to be in the back of his head. And then you just see Brother Day just like, uh, we'll decide that later, we'll decide that later. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen to you now. I just mm -hmm. want to know 
your feelings, your emotions, who you are, because you're not one of us. They kind of have a tense standoff as as Brother Day is going to leave. He says something along the lines of, "You have never, have you never wanted something else than this life? Have you never wanted no. to just be? Have you always just wanted to be another installment in a dynasty and stuff?" I thought part of the reason that this this kind of scene works so well is because their characters play off each other so well. Because uh, Don is this uh, Cleon clone that is that is different. He's changed, and his DNA is different, and he hates it. Um, and what I get from Day, especially having gone through the spiral on the yeah. Maiden, is he kind of longs for some individualism because yeah. he, he thinks that it'll give him a soul. I think they touched on this early in the uh, in the season where he talked about why uh, Halima, Zephyr Halima, didn't believe that they had a soul. And he was telling younger Dawn that she thinks that anything that is an individual doesn't have a soul. If it's a complete copy of something, then it's not. So yeah. it sets up this really great dynamic between the two where Dawn kind of hates that he's different. And I think Day kind of secretly wishes to be different. And it kind of it kind of um, sets up this kind of resentment and uh, and really complex relationship between the two uh, that I found kind of interesting in that scene specifically. It goes from there back to Terminus. He says, uh, Hugo says, we can't we can't really do this plan that you're referring to because the Empire will find us. They're going to send a scout ship and retrieve us. And he says, take the Invictus, go around to the other side of the star, and then activate the quantum drive, I believe. They're going to fake a star flare to make it look like the the whole system has probably died from that star yeah. flare and make it so that they can kind of operate um, independently without worrying about oversight. Is that is that what you got? Yeah, that's pretty much what I got, where it was they're going to fake their own death so that way they could just do whatever the hell they want. They, they're presenting, very much presenting Harry Seldon in a kind of a religious prophet. That's kind of how they're presenting yeah. him in this as well. Kind of, it, it reminded me of Moses coming down from the mountain with the tablets of the commandments, you know, and then and then, yeah. and then going right back up right after, after kind of delivering his message from God. Because he does, he comes down, he says some things. He apparently unites a planet in about 10 cent or about three sentences. He, he unites two warring planets and then he just kind of goes back up to the vault after he's dispensed his information. Yeah. The, uh, the more specific things I wanted to hit on too was he says, okay, so there she's asking some questions about like, wait, how does this all work out? She's like, were you just in the vault the whole time spying on us? And he's like, no, I think he says like, even for the greatest minds, that kind of isolation would damage you. He says that the vault was triggered by the Anacreans. And by its automated de automatic automatic defense system, and I remember thinking, like, what? Like, because no nothing interacted with the vault specifically. The Anacreans just showed up on the planet, and then um, I guess the vault recognized that Anacreans ships were in the atmosphere, and then started expanding its null field. Like, I was confused at the yeah. He he's kind of vague and just says automatic defense system, but I don't really understand how that works because nothing really attacked the vault. It was just kind of like things were on the planet happening. And I guess the vault just recognized that that was occurring and started expanding. I, I'm not 100% yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it just got way too convoluted. Like they were trying to like make it seem like it was all seen, all powerful, all this, all that. And in reality, it's just like, okay, so you have a, you have a ship that has a null field. Okay, how was how null field created? Yeah. It's literally a casket, metal, a dead body and tiny robots and yet you create a force field that can knock that can render people unconscious to the point of death it's like but not salvor and they don't yeah. really I, and, and another criticism they don't really explain he's not even he's not even at all interested as to why it doesn't affect her at all yeah so we do also get the information that harry is not the one that's been communicating with salvor yeah um he says he doesn't know anything about the visions that she's talking about he wasn't the one communicating with her which i think we've we've kind of uh We've kind of we, figured out in the past episodes as well, but they kind of make that known that Harry's not the one that's been communicating with Salvor. Yeah. 
And then just as quickly as he comes, he gives him the message of the gods and then leaves uh, back up to um, Moses's mountain, I guess, uh, in the vault. We go from, do you have any more thoughts uh, on that scene before we move no, on? No, okay, I yeah, want to get to we... my favorite scene. I want to get to my favorite scene and I'm taking this over. I am so okay, sorry. Go for it. I, no, go for your it. Thing. So after this, we move on to Azura and Brother Day. So Azura takes off the the um, the mask that prevents you from like feeling anything, the sensory depra- mm-hmm. uh, deprivation mask. Yeah, they take it off of her and Brother Day kind of explains, takes her out to the garden, which I think <clears throat> the going from like the bleak, desolate place of just not feeling anything to the garden of what's something that she loves, full of colors, flowers, senses, smells. It's a great transition to like, hey, this is this is where we are now. And then he starts explaining what he's going to do to her and how deadpan deliver like his delivery on that is like he starts going to like okay we're gonna go everybody all your family member your entire generation mm-hmm. your everybody that knew you and he just goes all gone yeah it was like the entire scene just was probably my favorite scene of the episode mm-hmm. because you see how he has so much control and he wants to keep all this control together and he'll go to any lengths to do that and it was just a great framing great setup great everything this was my favorite scene of this episode because you see how much they will go through things just to make sure that no one will ever know that this has ever happened yeah and the cover-ups and it's really great and i like it i really did enjoy it one of my highlights of the episode i think if i had to put like what my favorite thing about the episodes were is we finally got some really awesome aliens uh, yeah. alien animals. So we got some awesome alien biology. I'm a big fan of like kind of speculative biology and like xenobiology and stuff. And uh, I remember I, I really liked the aliens that they had. I think there was like three or four instances in this episode where I think we've only got like one or two the whole rest of the season. So I remember thinking like, okay, cool, we're getting we're getting aliens, which is awesome. Um, the other thing is, like you said, it was a great it was a great contrast with the scene we had previous where we're in this desolate place yeah. and Harry's giving the stuff to now we're in this lush garden and uh, very tonally different because of kind of what Lee Pace says to her. Um, yeah. I thought his performance was amazing in the in the in the scene. Um, the the issues that I had with the scene were that um, no again, issues, I, no issues. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. I know, I know, I know. I got to like. I got to like tone down my criticisms, I guess. I got to keep it real. Yeah, there are some uh, issues with the scene. I thought that the the stakes would have been a lot more impactful to me had we had any kind of information about her family before or any kind of like if they would have made it like um, in the in the previous episode where she says that she's doing this for her family or she's doing this for like yeah. a brother or something along those lines, then this whole like um, your whole extended orbit and family is going to be killed would would seem like they're they're taking away her one thing that she was fighting for um but it's kind of just presented to us in the scene um i also there wasn't much visually shown cleon's like yes we have 1555 people um that you've ever come in contact with and and known in your extended orbit so we're supposed to believe i guess that they have army soldiers at all of those places in sniper positions holding particle beams at their brain stems all at the same time and once he does this they all die i just remember thinking that seemed very like that seemed very outlandish yeah. to me um but it was very menacing in the way he delivered it and i thought it was kind of a dark a dark scene where he, he you can see that uh whatever transgressions are, are put upon cleon he's going to give it back about a thousandfold and yeah. i think he's shown that um in both him and and dusk uh when he was dead yes that any transgressions you put on the empire are going to be repaid like 
way more than than you anticipate. He also gives this chilling account of what her life's going to be like after yeah. this, where he says she's going to be intravenously um, fed, kept alive. kept alive, and she's going to be sheathed where she can't see, smell, taste, or touch anything, but she's going to be aware of what was taken away from her. I thought that was a very yeah. like very scary uh, proposition. Yeah, um, there I, and. I, yeah. Oh, and then last thing before I kick it back over to you, they, uh, I like that it takes place in the garden because it's what she tended to when she was working there. So I think that has kind of a thematic tie into her character yeah. that he takes her there and he says that, you know, they've been tending to the dynasty much like she's tended to these plants over the years. And then kind of doing it in that setting is both visually stimulating watching it and also makes sense for her character. So I did like that choice yeah. as well. Um, I do agree with you. They, when he was explaining about the stuff, it would have been great seeing some of the ramifications some of the, like people being like shot down by a laser just being killed that way and when he was like naming names naming the grandfather it would have been great just to see something a little bit different just like a throwing like a family tree throwing something throwing people throwing other mm -hmm. give us something else like right it is a very well acted scene it is a very mm -hmm. beautifully stunning scene we do get to see more animals we get to see the garden in a different way that we haven't seen it before mm -hmm. so it gave us a lot of great things but I would have loved to have seen like someone in the garden just like fall down dead. Right. That's a great point because that could have been something really easy because he even said people that work on the palace grounds were in your orbit as well. So when he did that, at least having somebody that maybe she knew or worked with that was tending to the plants at the time die um, would have been this visual like impact for her to go, oh, this actually all just happened. Like it actually yeah. really happened. Um, but we didn't get that. It was kind of uh, it was we kind have of to just. We yeah. have to just kind of trust that he followed through on that without having seen it. And yeah, and that leads us to our biggest complaint of this of the of the series is that they tell us these things and we're supposed to believe it, but they don't show us these things. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you do that for so many major plot points and so many major key moments in these characters' lives, we can't believe it anymore because we're like, well, did that really happen? And uh, the last little point, last little tiny note that I thought was really cool about the scene is this whole thing. The um, And for those listening on the podcast, he holds the two fingers up and twists them to the side to kind of show that he's killed these people. That same hand gesture is the same one that he made during the Anacreon attack where uh, he had all the guns pointed at the two planets and he gave the two finger salute kind of to trigger that uh, genocide essentially yeah. that happened on those two planets. So I thought that was, I thought that was a good parallel is that for him to kind of use that as kind of his method of delivering um, em em empirical justice. Uh, yeah. So I thought that was a cool touch as well. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. So that was a really good catch. Um, let's see. So this was a pretty long scene. Then we go back yeah. to Salvor's talking to her mother back on Terminus. They're kind of yep. they're kind of grappling with the fallout that Harry just told them. And the mother specifically feels very betrayed that Harry not only just kept them in the dark, but actively lied to them. Yes, which I can totally see that. Uh, that that being frustrating. And then Salvor says something. Uh, Salvor kind of trying to justifies what he did by saying that uh, if the Empire still is going to fall and you think humanity can do better, well, kind of what's the difference? The one thing that I, I don't really understand, and like I said, maybe people in the comments can illuminate this for me. I don't know how Salvor can honestly think she's not special. She was talking to him like, oh, I thought I was, I thought I was special. And I remember just being like, how do you not at this point know that you were special like you survived the jump on the invictus you've been the only person that can walk up to the vault and actually interact with the vault you opened the prime radiant um which the, only harry and one other person have done 
in history. Um, you yeah. triggered the vault uh, to, to open up and Harry to come out. Um, you've saved Terminus on your own. There's no way that she would at this point still feel like she's not special. Like yeah. everything she's done has been like the most, um, the most kind of outstanding, uh, uncommon thing that someone can do. And, and the fact that her mother still has to kind of reassure that, oh no, you're special. You helped us or saved us. I remember yeah. uh, that, that kind of felt like we didn't really need that uh in the scene i just yeah. remember being like how does she not think she's special at this point but you could have cut it out and it would have we wouldn't miss anything because it didn't it didn't bring anything to the story uh yeah no i agree and and uh, i i mean i i do think having i do think having a scene where they're they're digesting all of the stuff yeah. that harry that makes sense just for the characters to kind of and for the audience for us to give us a moment to kind of work through all of the stuff he just kind of threw at us I, I get that. It's the it's the character moment specifically about her that I remember uh, kind of pushing back on. The, my problem with that scene also is like you never really saw Salvor like close to her mother like that where they're able to like deep, deeply dive into their emotions or feelings because her mother always came off as more logical, more emotionless. Like feelings are out of the equation. You have to use logic to solve problems and her dad was more you use feelings you use emotions let let the emotions in and i think if that scene was done with hugo it probably would have had more of a dynamic because hugo mm -hmm. always knew how special she was and if she's coming out saying i'm special i didn't know i was special hugo would have been a great person like you've always been special like you've never realized how special you are look at all these great things you've done yeah and it would have been a better digestion of everything that harry just said her interpretations of her place in the foundation and her place in the universe, it would have given us better understanding of who, what she, the conflict that she's going through eternally. It, it does go right to kind of Farah's uh, funeral, uh, essentially, or the closest thing to a funeral. What did you think of that scene between her and Rowan and the fact that uh, he grants her the bow of the Grand Huntress of Anacreon? Rowan showed Salvor a different side of Anacreon. She showed, mm -hmm. He showed a different side of how they think and it was great because they came to terms with Farah that she's gone, um, that they're implied that they're happier that she's gone, mm -hmm. um, and how much respect that he, that he has for Salvor for growing and being a completely different person from when they first met. So I really loved the scene. I mean, they could have probably cut it down a little bit, but mm -hmm. that scene was good because it gave, it gave closure to farah and her journey and the anachron's getting revenge because now they're like look we're gonna put our petty differences aside with the thespians and we now need to move on farah mm -hmm. couldn't do it and by burying farah planting a tree because a tree always symbolizes peace growth prosperity mm -hmm. by doing that we're moving on from farah and it was a great way to say hey that's done this is we're now moving to something different so it was a really great mm -hmm. way to do it they probably could have cut a little bit from it but i I generally like what they were going, what they were doing with it. Yeah, the things I liked about that scene specifically uh, were c kind of some of the stuff you spoke about as well. But the uh, much in the same way that um, I like the genetic dynasty in the way that it it shows the passage of time because you see like younger dawn become day and day become dusk, and then yeah. in the in this show where there's very big jumps in time periods, you're you're still able to kind of visually grab onto something. I thought the tree was a good uh, visual metaphor for that because I hopefully it features prominently in the future season, yes. and that way you kind of get a you kind of get a real world. Um, thing that uh that you can grab onto that says oh this is 138 years have passed because that tree we saw planted is now this giant tree 
on Terminus. You know what I mean? So I do like that they kind of fed that in, and hopefully it does feature prominently in the next season. I hope um, so other, too. The other thing I really liked as well was I do like that they gave the bow to her because, like I said, Farah was a very uh, good foil for Salvor, Salvor in yeah. the last episode. And having a kind of token or something that was important to Farah that's with her at all times is this kind of reminder of every time she uses that bow, she could be reminded of of kind of the lesson she learned from Farah uh, about kind of uh, diplomacy and, and kind of going that route. So I thought that was a good symbolic gesture that he yeah. gives her that. Um, I do I do have issues with how it how it uh, kind of turns out after in the episode. But in this moment, I really like that she was being granted the bow because I thought it was a a, a good uh, character metaphor for her to keep around. Uh, I thought yeah. that was that was kind of strong. Yeah, and then when we transition from there, we see the tree growing and and bringing fruits and and blossoming, and then you see the town growing there, mm-hmm. and then we go to the Invictus. And what I liked about the Invictus is you see see Hugo walking like a badass through the corridors. But what was great was you got to see everyone starting to work together. So mm-hmm. you get to see the three different camps working, uh, building. And when Hugo gets to like the main command sphere, one of my favorite scenes from there is he touches it and you just see Thespins and, and, and Akron just talking, chilling. I was like, why were we even hating each other? And it helps push that like, yeah, they really didn't really, their grievances was, a fake history that they were plotted mm-hmm. against each other and given time they could overcome it and they could see that they were wrong. And I liked it. I liked how they just kind of did that. Like, yeah, we could come together and we could be prosperous. Yeah. So they reveal Hugo is the new captain of the Invictus. Um, he's the captain. So he's the kind of representative from Terminus. And then we also have the head guy from Thespin. I, do you know his yeah. name? Um, I the, never caught it. Yeah. Uh, the head guy from Thespin and then Rowan from Anacreon. They are all yeah. kind of, on the deck of the Invictus, uh, helping each other and kind of working in tandem, like you said. I thought this was very visually a cool scene. I love the tracking shot going through the uh, the ship. Yeah. And then I love how when he puts his hand on the globe, it kind of lights up and they zoom out through the windows and it shows the reflection of this giant ship. Really got the scale of everything in that scene. And uh, again, to your point, it kind of shows the cooperation and, and the growing cooperation between them and kind of what they can achieve there. So. Uh, I yeah I, I thought that was visually a very cool scene and and stuff um, and and does show kind of the cooperation that's that's growing between the uh, the the planets three planets yeah. there Hugo and Salvor yeah. have a have a romantic moment in her awesome tent I don't did you like it's like a it's like a weird kind of cabin like a futuristic cabin I remember yeah. thinking I just I like the way it, her her cabin looks that's it, pretty cool you know what they remind me of they remind me of FEMA tents for uh, Firefest <laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't seem very permanent, but it seems right up her alley as far as just kind of it's kind of a lean to very small serves its purpose. And then she can get out there and be warden when she's uh, not she's not working there. So I thought that was cool. We also got cool. uh, Another cool alien. We got the little little... aliens being hunted by like the bigger kind of wolf kind of alien there, uh, which was awesome. I I just like any any of those scenes where they show more biodiversity. Yeah. Um, And then I did I did make a point here that I wanted to touch on, which is. They're kind of writing Hugo, and and I have no issue with this because female characters were written like this forever. But they're yeah. they're kind of writing Hugo like that, uh, maybe one dimensional. Um, their entire character is kind of there to prop up the male protagonist character in previous, uh, in, yeah. in like in the like previous decades. Whenever this character existed, that's what the wife was there for. And I I kind I, of like that they I, I I kind of I'm kind of split on I like that they gender swapped it, and now Hugo is kind of filling that role. But it's also I didn't I didn't like it in those shows either. It was like kind of a one dimensional yeah. 
they didn't really have much agency. They were just kind of there to prop up the uh, the love interest. And then um, I'm okay with them gender swapping it, but I never really liked those characters to begin with. So um, what, yeah. what did you think about that as well? He's a throwaway character, and I hate the fact that he's a throwaway character because he's such he does such a great job at that role. Like Mm -hmm. granted he is my type. He's tall, dark, and handsome, amazing (laughs) beard. Yeah. He's got those Fremen blues too. Those, uh, I know I could get lost in those eyes. (laughs) I do agree with you. He was there just for eye candy. He was there to help support, um, Salvor with Mm -hmm. everything that she does. And he was more of a support character that gives her whatever she needs, whenever she needs it. Mm -hmm. Um, he was very one dimensional throughout the entire series. It was unfortunate because like i said he was a great character he had a lot of great potential and just to kind of use him to support the main protagonist we kind of see it from a different perspective for once where it's where it's a female protagonist using the male to better themselves i think both of us are completely aware that these are gripes that women have had in this situation for so many years decades where the female character just seems to be there to support the male protagonist and so um, this could be a very kind of uh, important commentary on that and saying like, you know, this is to kind of, I guess, uh, empathize us to the fact that that we feel this longing for this character that's not going to have any agency or any kind of um, any kind of different dimension to him. Uh, yeah. It could be a commentary on the fact that that's been how uh, cinema and TV has treated these female yes. characters for so long. So uh, I, I am very aware of that. I just remember thinking I didn't like it when when it was females that that didn't have any kind of dimension or agency to them and i i'm i'm kind of torn on it now but i yeah. do like i do like that it highlights that issue you know yeah they're they're not characters they're plot devices they're plot exactly points. they 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 push the story for the protagonist and mm-hmm. i agree with you it is very very dumb that they've always been doing this that they've used characters um there's a specific scale that they have um, the Bechdel test there it is thank you mm-hmm. where it's conversations that women have where if they're what do they talk about? And a lot of these sci-fi shows fail it miserably because they would only talk about the male protagonist. That's right. their entire dialogue. That's their entire character personality. Mm-hmm. So seeing the flip side of it, hopefully allowed people to realize like, Hey, this is a growing trend that we need to yeah. stop. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally agreed. Uh, it goes from, it goes from there. Gail leaves. She, she's awoken in the night by uh, some oh, kind of feeling. Not Gail. Oh, not sorry, not Gail. Uh, Salvor is awoken in the night by uh, feeling she gives uh, she gives Hugo a peck on the cheek and gets out of there. Um, and then she oh, finds, the yeah, she finds she has a vision of Gail um, running uh, towards the vault and then kind of diving into a watery uh, floor. I thought that was a kind of a cool CG effect there, but she dives yeah. off the rock into the floor into water. That was really cool um kind of this is the first time i think gail specifically has revealed herself before yes. i think salvor seen images of Raish, and this time she's seeing gail um this is i think what gives her the information that the person she's seeking lives on a water planet is her diving in the rocks like water yeah. there um she goes to the vault i don't i i'm trying to remember she went to the vault and stuck her hand out but i don't remember if anything happened or that that's no, just nothing. what seen in, yeah, yeah so we didn't really that, see anything and then she goes to her mom and she finds yeah. out the true history of her lineage and origin and you are right this is the first time we got to see gail as a separate unit because every single time that they've shared or interconnected with each other salvor has always taken on the persona of gail and she's always mm-hmm. seen herself from gail's, gail's point of somebody else's point of view as her being gail this was the first time we got to see salvor see gail as a separate person right. kind of like how she saw race as a separate person more often than not this was the first time we got to see 
that exchange. Exactly. It uh, it goes to the scene with her mother, which I think is my second least favorite scene in the in the episode, and I, I can go no. into why. The first thing is uh, she gives this story about this whistle that a boss had that we had not seen before in nope. the in this show at all, and would have been extremely easy to show him like when they were wa- when they were like traveling to blow up the Anacreon sh- uh, the lancers. Yeah. Show him like in a moment of, um, you know, when things were getting tough, him like using the whistle as a way to kind of like calm her or even in a flashback with her as a kid using the whistle to kind of calm her or have him blowing there to where we actually felt kind of connected to that item. But again, they explain it, they set it up and then they pay it off by having her be her take that as a token with her to Synax later in the episode. So that was another thing of just like. I don't understand why this wasn't weaved in. It makes me feel like the show was written episode by episode as opposed to them writing um, like writing things yeah. uh, with the intention to use these things later on, writing in wrinkles and stuff for that. So that was the first thing I had issue with was the whistle. The other thing was they explained, so, the, so she says, who's the woman from the water planet? And the mother tells her, oh, we I got my egg from like a, a, a donor that was controversial. And uh, she explains it's Galen Rage. And maybe I'm missing something, but I don't understand why this information was kept from Salvor. Um, one, I don't understand why the information was kept from Salvor, especially yeah. when Salvor's been having this crisis of of um, of, of being special and uh, that her mother has been very well aware of. Her, her, She's also had this condition where she's not affected by the vault which would seem like her lineage would play into maybe why her mother yeah. would think that she'd do that. Her mother also said that she thought she could do the prime radiant, but never explained why she thought she could do the prime radiant potentially. And then the last thing that I had a question about was why Salvor's not upset that her mother withheld this information from her for this long. She just seemed like she was kind yeah. of okay with it. All of those things. I just remember thinking like, wait, what is happening? Um, what, what were your thoughts on this scene as well? I, dude, I agree with you 100%. Like, it's kind of hard when you tell someone that, hey, you're adopted so late in their life. And then they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm adopted. Cool. Anyway, do you know where my mom might be at? My biological yeah. mom? She's over yeah. there. Okay, cool. I'm going to go, like, find her. And you'll probably guys be dead, but bye. And then from the parent standpoint, so Salvor has been experiencing visions from Harry. She's been experiencing, like... um her ability to kind of see the future and tell uh, her intuition flipping coins and stuff for all of yeah. this time. She's been wrestling with whether or not she's part of the foundation's um, plans or whether or not she's actively going against it. And despite all of these kind of existential conflicts that Salvor has been dealing with, her parents could have easily told her, you know, that's funny that you're having these visions about Harry, or that's funny. You're having these intuitions because your mother actually was this prodigious mathematician that was able to see, uh, potentially see the future as well. And new psycho history more than anyone. And also your dad was one of the most intimate people close to Harry. So that seems very odd that you would be having these visions and stuff like that. But for that, for her to just withhold this until Salvor says, Hey, who's the girl in the water planet? And then she goes, Oh, all right. I guess I'll tell you all of this information. Now I just remember, I don't, understand it and uh if there's a valid reason why her parents would have kept that information from her please let yeah because it just didn't make any sense especially since like they've always been so open with everything about her they've always mm-hmm. they never held anything back from her and that's the kind of the impression i got was they never held anything back from her yet for this important information they just wouldn't tell her anything about it there's like oh yeah i guess we gotta tell you now um so she says she has to leave, and her justification for it is, I have to leave now or else I'm not going to have the courage to do it. 
Hugo felt something off and he followed her. So he kind of, they had this very uh, touching goodbye, I guess, at the beggar about her leaving. I did like, the one thing I did like about this is he does say, will you be mad later? I thought that was a good callback yeah. to earlier in the in the season when um, she goes to leave to check the uh, gates. And uh, he says, will you be mad later uh, to her? So I thought that was a good callback uh, yeah. there. Uh, that seemed very few and far between in the show. So I always like to highlight those when they happen. She takes the bow of Anacreon with her. And I remember thinking, like, that seems odd to me because she was just gifted this bow from the people of Anacreon. A very, very, like, um, yeah, extremely a- sentimental bow to the people of, of their culture and everything like that. And she... She gets gifted to her, and then a few months later, she takes it off planet away from the Anacreon people. And I remember thinking, I don't know how that really works out logically. It seems like maybe if she knew she was going to be leaving in that moment, that she would have gone and left it to Rowan or given it back to Rowan or something like that. Um, That seemed a little strange to me as well. What did you think about that? I just, like, she ended up taking the two most valuable pieces that they have on Terminus. She took the the bow of the Grand Huntress, Mm -hmm. and she took the uh, little, the Matrix Cube. Uh, prime the prime radiant. radiant yeah yeah the prime radiant makes a little more sense to me just because she's the only one that could really open it and if she's going to see gail gail may actually be able to use the psycho history to potentially like activate it or something like yeah. that i the prime radiant they've had in terminus for a long time and they weren't able to do anything with it until salvor was able to open it using gail's memories and stuff so i understand that a little more it's the the bow i just remember being like she's gifted this like amazing sacred bow from this planet and all these people as as like a sign of trust and faith in their alliance and then a couple months later, she's like, I'm going to go on this crazy journey to find my mom. And she takes it with her. And I remember thinking that it seems kind of disrespectful to uh, to their culture and yeah. people. I feel like she would have probably given that to Rowan. That might be nitpicky. I just remember thinking they just gave it to her and then she's leaving with it. And I remember thinking that's like, like uh, it seems a little off. So Salvor goes, uh, she, she leaves uh, Terminus. She's on a journey to find Gale. Yes. That's where we leave her. Um, we go back to Trantor now. Um, yes. Brother Don is awaiting the justice of his brothers in the in his room, um, and Demerzel comes to kind of walk him to his uh, his ultimate um, kind of judgment, his ju- ultimate judgment. So she walks him to the trial. Um, she says some cool lines in this exchange yeah. uh, that I thought were really interesting. She says, um, "He says you don't really love me. You're just programmed to." And she says. All love is programming, biological or otherwise. She talks about how mothers are yeah. kind of biologically programmed to love their children. So um, I did like that she made that connection there. Um, he goes to the throne room and they're kind of dispensing the judgment there. Dusk is vitriolic towards him. He hates yes. him. Uh, he hates that he's just different and 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 uh, doesn't really have any empathy for, for Dawn in this instance. Um, and then dusk, uh, you know, we've talked about his character being one of the more interesting ones as far as his journey and his development over the season. Um, having gone through the things he did on the maiden, he also, he says that maybe this is time for the, uh, it's time for the Cleonic dynasty to bend. He says, quote, um, a bow that never bends is doomed to break. They also say another line that I liked, which he says a soul incapable of change is doomed to stagnation. And that kind of propels him to make the decision he makes there. Uh, what did you think about this scene uh, and, and kind of the twist and everything towards the end uh, or leaving out the twist? I'll describe that in a second, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me is this is the first time we actually see uh, Demerzel touch one of the Cleons because when Brother uh, Dawn is just kind of like, I don't want to go in. I don't want to go in. She puts her yeah. hand on the small of his back like, "We, got, you're supported. We got you. I got you. I'm here for you. That's a great catch. I didn't notice that at all, but that makes 100% sense because he no longer has his aura. And I remember she puts his hand on his back and he looks kind of like 
comforted yeah. and but also just kind of like uh surprised so that's a great catch i didn't catch that but yeah that, that is the first time that he's probably been touched with like a tender uh yeah. like a tender meaningful moment in his life you know once again lee pace and terrence mann steal every single scene that they're in in this in this episode mm -hmm. and their interactions when they're going over what they feel and when brother day is talking about um his experience in the maiden and i was like you know what i think we need to change i think we need to become something different and there's a few things that like were very unique because you start to see them start playing with her uh, salt the mm -hmm. the the salt bracelet and we've never really seen her fidget with that at all and this is the first time you see her actually like fidgeting with it on purpose and because most of the time she's very regal she's she maintains her stature in front of them and with them and she's breaking it so it mm -hmm. was it was great and the words the way that brother day delivers those lines especially the what how you're saying that like i think we need to change i don't think we need to keep reliving the same dynasty over and over and over again with no change i think we do need to change yeah that's a great point about her her um they, they he talks about his uh experience doing the spiral and experience on the maiden and she's kind of fidgeting with her salt crystal which we've seen her done in the past and I think it kind of represents that she's going through some kind of internal emotional struggle at that point. Yeah. She's kind of using that as a as a um, as a comforting uh, mechanism for her. She's got this outward appearance of being this reserved advisor, and she's got so much in internal struggle that's that she's dealing yeah. with. As you said, Dusk and Dawn start fighting. Dusk is yeah. infuriated that that Day is even um, even considering uh, yeah. keeping Dawn around considering that he's a genetic ab uh, abomination and that uh, he needs to be kind of dispatched to to maintain the perf perfection of the Cleon dynasty. Yeah. And they, they actually go to blows. I think Dusk slaps him yeah. and they they start fighting. Dawn is scared during their scuffle and he runs into Demerzel's arms to be comforted and says, please don't let them kill me. And as they're fighting, Demerzel snaps Dawn's neck to the surprise of both D Dusk and, and Day and they uh they seem extremely surprised and she says that she is faithful above all to the cleonic dynasty and then dusk goes to her pretty much gives her a nod of approval and says i want the new dawn to be up to speed by tomorrow um that twist i i did like that twist i didn't really see it coming uh when it happened and i remember um it really illuminates the fact that i think there's been a growing feeling that demerzel is uh uh, about her allegiances but there's also been a growing feeling that she is uh she is faithful more more so to the dynasty as yeah. a whole than each individual cleon which uh, makes, makes all the sense in the world now that she snapped one's neck she is very much faithful to the system of the cleonic dynasty above yeah. any cleons in particular um what did you think about that twist with her killing day i didn't like the fact that it was the blows on her hands and she mm -hmm. took and she because this is the first time we've seen her act without being told what to do from day and dusk mm -hmm. or dawn because she's always followed their rules followed their 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 orders she's always followed what they told her the commands this is the first time we got to see her break that command break that like make her own decision and because we've never seen her make decisions before at all mm -hmm. and it's a growth that we see in her that we hadn't seen before and it kind of makes you think where did she where did she gain that growth was it when they lied about seeing the vision or was it always slowly growing when, when it was happening and it just came into fruition when she had to kill uh, Halima? It was unique that this was the first time Demerzel made a decision without consulting Cleon. And Dust was like, okay, good. Let's yeah. go. 
Right. And you see Day more heartbroken, more mm-hmm. devastated by this before, because you've seen Day get rid of generations of family as if it was nothing, generations of people, planets full of people. This is the first time we know that they actually have to use the backup copy. Yeah. Because we've never heard of it before. The books might be different, but in the show itself, they've never had to do this. So it's a unique new nuance to their to their dynamics because they've mm-hmm. always been like that so that was an interesting twist as her doing that it was a good character moment um it really sets up a great it really sets up a great conflict for them going into season two because now there's now we've got conflicts between all three of those characters dusk is obviously very conflicted with day and his leadership yeah. and his decision making and then day is also very conflicted with demerzel and her allegiances and loyalty especially after her bowing um on the on the maiden and now making this decision against his wishes um, there seems to be a very, there seems to be, uh, all three of those relationships seem to be rife for conflict and, uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see how those relationships evolve in this second season. Um, it goes to a scene where day is, is carrying his brother, his, his, uh, younger self, I guess I say brother. Cause he yeah. referred to him as like his son and brother and stuff at the same time. Oh, uh, uh, before we get there, there is a scene where, uh, dusk is looking at the portrait of the six Raptors that they killed. Right, yeah. And you see him throw the platter at the the painting and you just see the the paints kind of like start evolving and warping it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of unique that they did it that way because my interpretation of it, because I thought that was a really cool visual, was you started seeing this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful painting start crumbling down and not like the traditional, like it falls down, but it just starts warping into just nothing. Like, yeah. All that work erased. Is, yeah. And it was a great way to show that Brother Day it or Brother Don is being erased from existence because mm-hmm. we lead up to uh Day holding Don as they're walking down the chamber. So I thought that was a really cool uh he came to terms that Brother Don is gone. Earlier in the episode when Day was was talking to Don um in the first scene, he says, So is a corrupted echo more original than a perfect one, or does it fade away to nothing? And yeah. we got our answer, I think, in that former scene where it does fade away to nothing. And I thought that was a great visual callback to that that line and that quote earlier in the episode um, that it in fact does. Uh, and and he is kind of gone and from the history books forever. So yeah. it goes to uh, day carrying um, Dawn to the room that we saw in episode three where Dusk turned into Brother Darkness and was eliminated. Um, he's t- carrying his corpse there to um, to be cremated or zapped or whatever you want to call it. And yeah. um, Don seems extremely emotional about it. He seems to have maybe softened from his time on the Maiden, and he seems very empathetic to to Don in this situation. This seems like a very uh, a very emotional loss for for Day. Um, yeah. And he's carrying him to be cremated. Uh, Shadow Master Obricht, after he's after Don is is cremated, uh, makes an appearance, and he says he drops a bomb on us. And yes. he says that it seems that the rebels um, have not just undermined Brother Don, but that they've undermined both the original Cleon's DNA and any of the replacement DNA that has come from him. Um, they do make it a point. They say they don't know when it happened, but they do know that Brother Day has been adulterated, which is yes. his quote, and mm-hmm. that they say Dusk is being examined um, as, as to whether or not he's been adulterated or not. And it leads to this very big emotional outburst from Day where he starts banging on the... Um, on the the tomb uh or the display case of the original cleon and trying to break down those walls it's a very emotional scene there uh what did you think about both uh his carrying of dawn to the cremation site as well as the revelation that all of them seem to be adulterated 
because I I viewed that scene as three parts: the mm. death, him being erased from history, and him being erased completely. Because we got to see that with uh, Azura, uh, Azura, where she was completely erased from history, and we got to see Brother Don experience the same aspect where he was erased from history. Having Don carry uh, day carry him shows that like he is growing as a person because beforehand. He would not even done that. He wouldn't even bothered of carrying him. He was just like, yeah, I don't give, I don't care. Somebody else could do it. Mm-hmm. And then when he finds out that they've been corrupted, it just reaffirms his belief that like, I, they have to change. They have to become some, something new. They can't keep reliving the same past, reliving the same, the same things because it is going to crumble. It's going to fall apart. It's going to lead to the downfall. Yeah. You're seeing, um, you're seeing some of the inner conflict in brother day kind of externalizing in this way where, he is um, he uh, again again. I think he's wrestling between his you know they set up in the in the previous episodes about his kind of fighting w- about whether or not he has a soul and kind yeah. of dealing with the existential conflict that that brings. And I think part of him, uh, I think he's very conflicted because I think part of him wants to be the perfect Cleonic copy, like he talks about with uh, in earlier in the episode with Azura and says he wants to just be he doesn't want to be better. He just wants to be another one. And then yeah. I think the other side of him wants to be individual because he wants to have a soul. He wants to be somebody that could have been worthy of a vision in the yeah. spiral. And I think he's wrestling with those two things. And uh, him getting this news is could be considered both good and bad news, depending on what side of that coin that he falls on. So he it could be good news in learning that he is an individual and that he is different and that he's not just a carbon copy of something. But at the same time, it's, it's bringing down the dynasty that uh, he is, he's a part of, and that's been lasting for 400 years now and is so kind of instrumental to his character. So yeah. uh, the way they externalize that and have him breaking, trying to break down the glass, I thought was very impactful and Lee Pace did a great job in the scene. I, th- I found it um, interesting and an interesting point that I'm going to bring up in predictions as well, that Shadow Master Obrecht, while he was doing the ceremony of destroying Brother Dawn, was uh, was in the room as well. Um, yeah. And he's kind of, he's such a trusted advisor to them that he's allowed to kind of see these very very sensitive um situations because yeah. if any news got out that cleon that day was was or dawn was dead and that the new dawn was being hatched or brought out of a test tube would completely undermine the entire empire um and the fact that shadow master obrecht is is uh is present at these things was very interesting to me it goes from that scene to a scene with demerzel i believe is that the next one yep uh, so demerzel very reserved very calm as always is walking with in her usual gate to her room she sits down at her general, um, at her normal uh, kind of uh, vanity, I guess. Yeah. And she is, uh, they, they have her flower that she had during the spirit kind of framed in the shot as well. She's yeah. surrounded by mirrors where she's seeing her own, um, her own visage in these mirrors constantly. And she has an emotional breakdown where she just kind of starts freaking out. She starts tearing off her face and revealing her android um, skeletal structure. Uh, I, I like this scene a lot. I thought the CG was really good in this scene. Yes, it was. Uh, I remember I remember being like, "Wow, this looks this looks so good." Uh, you know that the, it was it was almost hundred percent CG when she was doing that to her face, and I thought it looked outstanding. Um, her performance was great. It obviously shows that she's been really uh, holding in and and uh, such pent up rage and emotional um, emotional rage for so long. And you wonder if her having to kill her own child, which she would have considered done at the time. Uh, kind of triggers that or if it was something else yeah. uh, you know that we can get into potentially in predictions but um, I thought it was a great scene what did you think of that scene as well it makes you believe that she did have a vision that she 
she does have a soul because she, if she's an android, if she's programmed, she was programmed to be emotionless, but you don't see that. You mm-hmm. see her emotionless throughout most of the series. And then towards the end, uh, when she had to kill uh, Halima, then Brother Don, you see that, that all that death has finally taken its toll on her. And she starts, she breaks down. She has an emotional yeah. breakdown. And the CGI was beautiful. Like one of the things about the CGI that really was a massively amazing standout features where she tears off part of her skin. Yeah. You see like the, the liquid the the glue, like kind of stick to it. And it just like peels away. Mm-hmm. It was very well done. Very well constructed. The, the framing of it was great. And then when she lets out that like primordial scream, yeah, blood curdling. Yeah. It was just like, you felt it. You yeah. felt her pain, her anguish, her love, her hatred. You felt all of it. Yeah, I, I think we give a lot. We give a whole lot of praise to the Cleon actors, and rightfully so. Terrence Mann and Lee Pace have been standouts for me in the in the, in the season as far as acting. Um, but uh, I want to highlight Laura Byrne in this in this oh my instance God, yeah. too. Um, I think she has one of the most hard roles to pull off because she has to maintain this very. Um, very proper, reserved, and and then show so much emotion through her eyes without giving too much away, and yes. uh, have to do so much acting specifically with the eyes and show uh, a kind of um, show a, a just beneath the surface uh, intensity. And I think she's pulled that off spectacularly in this season, and it all kind of culminates in this in this scene where she's finally kind of uh, you see that facade, that reserved facade that she's been holding up throughout the entire season, kind of break down. Um, I think the face kind of represents that facade and she kind of tears it off and shows her emotion and rage and all the stuff she's gone to. But I thought Laura Byrne specifically should be highlighted too. I think for yes. the season, I don't think maybe we've talked about her enough, but she uh, had probably one of the hardest roles. And I think she's yes. done one of the best jobs uh, acting in the series as well. Yeah, I do agree. We haven't really given her a lot of props for what she's done. Mm-hmm. She's been a great actress. Uh, this scene just kind of in, in incorporates everything that she's done. And the way that they framed it, the way that she ex- executes it, is just really, really good. It's 138 years later. Um, Gail is now at Synax. So we've skipped forward 138 years. Gail is at Synax. And um, she's entering the atmosphere um, there. So she uh, the, yep. the gel goes away. She enters the atmosphere and she lands on Synax. She, she opens a raft and puts it in the water and she gets in the raft. Um, she's, she's pretty close to where her she lived and um i initially thought that was maybe like convenient but then i'm like well if she knew where she lived on the on the on the planet she would land close to it right so that kind of makes sense that that might that might be the case there um she starts paddling toward her old village i'm assuming is what i'm assuming is her old village because she sees visions of her mother and stuff when she looks at it um it turns out that she was right the water has risen everything seems to be pretty much submerged for the most part on the planet um and in a moment of crisis, she looks down past some really cool aliens again, I might add. Yeah. Uh, some awesome kind of Stingray, Synaxian aliens, uh, which are pretty cool. And she sees a blinking light. What did you think about this sequence with her landing and then finding the blinking light in the water? My biggest complaint of the series has been this, where everything has been so perfectly aligned that it's just like, there's no way. There, this is ridiculous that out of all of a sudden... She's like, go away, manta rays. I'm having an emotional crisis. That's something I predicted 130 years ago is coming true. And I see this blinking red light. And it's like, oh, I should go explore it. I'm able to write a lot of that off of my head because they make it like she has this intuition where things just kind of happen. But yeah, at some point, uh, at some point it feels easy because it's just like it's just like she 
these plot points just kind of present themselves to her. Um, so, so that it, it does, it does seem kind of easy in that, in that instance. Um, and also uh, apparently see-through boats for the win, because if the see-through boat hadn't existed, she wouldn't have seen that. Yeah, I know. To be with, so. Yeah. Cause if it was uh, that yellow monstrosity, yeah, then they transparent so well. kayaks were the MVP of this episode, apparently. So she sees it. She, she dives down. We find out that it looks like a uh, Salvor's ship has crash landed right at that spot. And that she is still in cryostasis. Gale opens the cryopod underwater, which I thought would have immediately drowned Salvor. Yeah, I thought so too. Because <laughs> I thought she would have just kind of gasped when the gel kind of subsided or something. But I guess her, um, what is it? Uh, what is that reflex? Her uh... Gag reflex? Or... No, no, it's like the reflex that keeps you from breathing underwater. I forget what it's called. You guys will let I... me know. Let me know in the comments. Flame me for not knowing what that reflex yeah, is. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she she uh, takes her to the surface and then she warms her by the fire and says, where are you from? And then, but they do this reveal that uh, it is Salvor and she says she's been looking for Gale um, this whole time. And then the episode ends. That's kind of where we're left is Gale yes, we are. and uh, Salvor are now on Synax 138 years in the future. And that's where everything ends. So uh, season two, I, I'm assuming is going to pick up around there and we're going to see what all of the other plot threads are 138 years gone on. I have a feeling uh, we'll, we'll get into predictions actually. So do you have any big predictions as to, uh, as to where you think season two is going to go? What questions kind of popped up in this episode that you think are going to be answered in the following season? How the hell did Salvor not drown on the way up from the spaceship? <laughs> yeah. That's like, I want to know how they explained that, but no, uh, one of the things I want to see is like, because they, one of the things that they mentioned in some of the earlier episode was like, Hugo is a lot older than what he seems because in space, you don't age as much, mm -hmm. even though like a hundred years will pass. You only age like five years. It'll be great to see like maybe Hugo is still alive. Maybe some of the people from Terminus are still alive because they've been in the Invictus. I do believe that we're going to get a new set of um, Cleons. We're going to get a new set of, mm -hmm. of those guys. I think it's going to be more similar to the fall of Rome. So I think we're going to get more, the Neros, the uh, the Caligulas, the people that led to the downside of it. Uh, the last Marcus Aurelius has already left. Or... So it's going to be more along that where you, we get to see more of the downfall of Empire, more of the downfall of Trantor, and some of the other places start emerging up and becoming bigger uh, powerhouses. Uh, the Foundation now becomes the ruler of the galaxy. I just want to see more of where everything builds after the 120 138 years mm -hmm. and where is everything in reality to where those two are at like who's been looking yeah. for them where's the the bow the grand hunch like are people still looking for these items the great predictions there i think uh i had a couple kind of more i had a couple specific ones that i think are going to be um addressed so one thing is uh in in an earlier scene with salvor talking to her mother when she was talking about the whistle with a boss and all that kind of stuff there was a throwaway line about salvor being a shoe-in for mayor that there was going to be an election um i think that election is going to happen in season two or well yeah. I, I think not that it's going to happen but i think the results of that election are going to be made known in season two where apparently whoever became mayor of terminus there might be some conflict there so i think that might present itself in season two as well because it seems like he wouldn't have that line if, if not that yeah um the other thing I have, I have a couple kind of bigger theories that kind of manifested during this episode. Um, Demerzel. So Demerzel killing Dawn kind of switched some things for me where, yeah. um, and I, in Asimov's work and it being someone that hasn't necessarily read Asimov's work, but I've, I've known about all the inspirations that have come from it and the movies that have been inspired by Asimov's work. The, uh, the laws of robotics are Asimov, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and, uh, Dr. Asimov from iRobot. Right. It, the I so the ideas of robotics or at least some of the um some of the properties that have taken that theme have taken that um robots could potentially do potentially do horrible things in service of a greater uh narrative that they're that they're trying to um to satisfy so if you're if you're doing the laws of robotics and you're saying that you want to save humanity potentially you could maybe uh ends could justify the means if you're looking from a broader scale right and i think uh, asimov's work has kind of alluded to that in a, in a couple properties that have either been adapted from his stuff or that have been inspired by his things there and that could be the case with demerzel i think maybe we're thinking that demerzel is the one that's been sabotaging things um and with her killing Dawn, she makes it very apparent that she is programmed to, uh, above all else, protect the Kleonic dynasty, not necessarily yeah. the Kleons. And this may be um, if she if she believes in psychohistory or she thinks that psychohistory are going to happen and the Empire is potentially going to fall. This may be a very overarching plot thing that Demerzel is on. She may be playing some chess that we're not um, very privy to at this point, where she's saying that if things have to go a certain way, um, this is the best route for us to reestablish the Cleonic dynasty after. So she could be not just not sabotaging the Cleonic dynasty. She could be like it's its best soldier at this point that's trying to um, make sure that it continues after Harry Selden's predictions, potentially. Um, that's one of my major theories that, that could possibly happen uh, in the coming seasons. And that also presents another opportunity where if Demerzel's not doing that, if, if by that theory Demerzel's not helping the insurgency, who is? And I think in this episode it raises that I think maybe Shadowmaster Obricht has a little more agency than maybe we're giving him credit for because he seems to have been has just as much access to these things as Demerzel does. He seems to have just as much access to the Cleons and kind of the yeah. more insider knowledge that's that goes with that dynasty. And he's been very he's one of the most mysterious characters that we have on the show. He doesn't have a lot of character moments and stuff there as well. So that's a possibility. And I think uh, I, I'm not going to kind of jump on a limb and say that that's the case, but I think he should be uh, a suspect in who is helping the insurgents. I think he should be one of the prime suspects. I agree with you on that because one of the things that Brother Don does when he shows Azora the the Cleon in the in the tomb and stuff like that, he says like, yeah, nobody's allowed to come here. This is like a forbidden area. No one's mm -hmm. it's allowed access here. Yet he was able to bring Azora there, and you start thinking like, well, who else has access to this forbidden zone? We saw Shadow uh, Shadow Master Obrick was there. We saw Demerzo was there. Mm -hmm. Azora and Don Day and Dusk. Yep. Out of those six, who else could have tampered with the DNA over time? Yeah. Tampered with Brother Don's DNA, Brother Day's DNA, Brother Dust's DNA. Do you think he's an android? Do you think that would explain his non-aging and, and stuff like that? Do you think he and Demerzel are both kind of androids and he's maybe a more militant version? He could have been, and they just haven't they just haven't said anything because we haven't seen mm -hmm. anybody else with that with that type of technology to cloak themselves. Yeah. We haven't seen the cloaking technology at all. So there's mm -hmm. a couple of things that like makes you think that like who could really be behind all the uh, insurgency, all the small little nuances to cause the downfall of the empire mm -hmm. and who would benefit most greatly from that downfall will be Demerzel or SA Shadow Master Obrick is right. an android. They just got wiped out by the original Cleon. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a revenge. 
And he also has an intimate knowledge of kind of their military operation, yeah. which means that he would probably be a better ally to insurgents than maybe Demerzel would in that instance, because he kind of has, like I said, a more working knowledge of the of the military forces, their weak points, their strong points and all that kind of stuff. So he seems like a more viable candidate for um, who would be helping insurgents uh, in, in this and who would have kind of been instrumental in the uh, star uh, star bridge attack potentially. Well so. He did a background check on Azura. Wouldn't he have found out about her dealings with the insurrectionists? Possibly. I mean, they they probably he, it's probably nowhere in her record that that's the case. Um, and, and but yeah, you'd think if he was maybe shadowing her or maybe like he would have maybe seen some suspicious activity from her if she was really doing that. So if he kind of wiped that under the rug and said, Oh no, she's cool. Like go ahead and talk to her. You can talk to her or whatever. Uh, that, that might be, they might've been working together. They might be, yeah. uh, they also had that weird scene earlier. I don't know if you remember, but we thought it was that he was, he was kind of looking in on her, but there was the scene where like Azora's in the garden and he's kind of watching her over her shoulder. And yeah. um, that could be either he was looking in on her and kind of a more nefarious purpose, or it could be a signal that maybe they have more of a relationship than we think. My last theory that I had, because uh, I think we're this was a long one, but this is a season finale, yeah, guys. So, yeah. uh, so we're we're going a little longer on this one. But the last theory I have is uh, they don't know when they started tampering with the DNA. They know that Dawn was obviously uh, adulterated. They know that yes. Day is adulterated. But they said they're still checking in on Dusk. And the fact that I said that they're testing him and they didn't really say that they were all there makes me think that maybe Dusk is the last perfect copy. Uh, maybe yep. this is something that happened after the Anacreon attack and. Um, and that this adulterated replicas, maybe Dusk is the last one that's real. And I think that's really interesting and sets up a really cool conflict for season two, because if Dusk is the last original copy and Day is the middle throne kind of leader of the Cleonic dynasty, but he's maybe not the or perfect copy, it's going to set up this very intense struggle between the two as who should be in power yeah. and who should, uh, it should be, it should set up this really cool power play between the two that I think will be great. And just the idea of Terrence Mann and Lee Pace kind of fighting uh, and kind of being antagonists to each other in a season is really compelling. And I think probably the thing I'm most interested about in the next season, if I'm being honest, those are my big overarching uh, predictions, guys. Um, did you have any before we head out? One of those main six characters that had access to the vault is going to be the per main perpetrator of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. For all we know, it could be brother dust that's been doing it. Cause he's been kind of antagonizing Don and day throughout the entire season. Mm -hmm. Cause we see that brother Don or brother dust, has antagonized brother day has antagonized brother dawn and it's kind of like gotten underneath their skin and we didn't see that in the first go around we saw blind loyalty to each other all three mm -hmm. of them were blindly loyal to it my prediction is i think brother brother dusk knows what's going on and he was the first one to be adultered and he kind of set all this up to lead to the downfall of it that's why he was quick to because everyone said that he was going to be very peaceful he was going to forgive the anachrons he was going to forgive the thespians he was just going to mm. say hey don't do that again but instead he blows up or he attacks the planet and it causes these conflicts yeah and every single time he makes a decision it causes conflicts maybe brother dusk is the one that's causing all these things like he wants it all to end he's adultered or he's not adultered and he's still the original copy but he's so tired 
of seeing this over and over and over again. Or he just he wants power back. He wants his power yeah. back. He wants the middle thrown back and adulterating the DNA line seems to be could be maybe be a, a way to do that potentially. So, yeah, it's a possibility. Yeah. I, I'd probably put my money on Demerzel or Shadowmaster Obrick more than that. But that's definitely something that could could rear its head in the next season and would be a kind of a, a, a cool wrench to throw in that. Um, is if Brother Dusk seems to be the one behind that would be really interesting as well. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be it, guys, man. We had a lot of fun this season. If you guys enjoyed uh, hanging out with us, make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Make sure you like the video. Um, if you guys are listening on the podcast platforms, all of our uh, awesome podcast listeners, um, make sure whatever um, service that you're on, that you can either share it or like it. Or if you're on Apple Podcasts, give a five-star review. That stuff's really going to help the podcast yes. going forward. We are going to be doing Discuss Hawkeye. So as you know, if you guys are following the channel and you're going to watch that Marvel Hawkeye show on Disney+, Plus. Uh, make sure to join the discussion with us here. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to partake in some Christmas festivities, which should be a great time. And we also have other shows planned that are going to be coming up. So make sure you're following the channel, um, following our socials that are going to be linked in the description if you're watching the video and should be linked in the description on the podcast as well. And uh, again, guys, thank you so much yep. for engaging with us in the comments and the chat and stuff. Me and Brian had a great time yeah. with it this season. And Nick, thank you so much for having me. This was a great experience. This is a great time. Uh, really enjoyed talking uh foundation something that me and you have no knowledge of and watching the <laughs> episodes and learning about it was really funny unique and i kind of i kind of want to read the book just to see how all this plays out and because it's always one of those books that everyone tells you it's if you like sci-fi you have to read it it's like mm -hmm. dune i just want to say thank you so much for having me on here um it was a really great time thank you for everyone that's joined us on this really highly recommend catching uh jason nick next week when they start doing hawkeye that's gonna be a great 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 time great experience so highly recommend sticking on for that one follow us on social media give us suggestions uh but once again thank you nick for having me on it's been a blast trust me oh yeah vice versa i think it's really cemented that the show is is going to be fun for us to do um by doing this and, and having you on specifically and kind of going through uh, through the episode that way, I'm able to see things that I didn't pick up in the episode and kind of really get a much more fuller appreciation of the show and, and the episode and kind of things that I might have missed. So it's been awesome. Uh, thanks as well for coming on. Um, but guys, uh, that's going to wrap it up here for us. Uh, season one is in the books of Foundation. Um, there is going to there is a green light for the show for season two. So we're definitely going to revisit and see if we do season two. If you guys definitely want us to do season two make sure to share and and let us know in the comments and let us know if uh if you guys have enjoyed uh the season with us here because if there's a you know if there's enough demand for it and enough people that want us to do season two for sure we're, we're gonna go ahead and do that so uh for the last time signing off uh respect and enjoy the peace may the light never dim and triple blessings to you all we shall see you guys soon see you later